Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. Today on the podcast, we're going to jump headfirst into the Gospel of Matthew and take a quick look at the chapters leading up to the Sermon on the Mount and discuss how they support Jesus' message. And on The Wire, we're going to discuss the reaction to the movie Unplanned and how the media's actions are the most blatant push of a political agenda I have maybe ever seen. It's those topics and so much more as we give them the bold speak. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Bold Speak podcast and our continued study of condition of the heart. Uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and after taking some time in the last two podcasts to talk a little history, we'll now begin to take a look at the Gospel of Matthew itself. Now, this is an important step because the previous chapters of Matthew set the stage for many of the important topics that Jesus is going to cover in chapters 5 to 7. So the goal here is to help you see that Matthew's gospel is one unified message about who Jesus is and who we are as the church. So we're going to step right into Matthew today. Now that also means that we're going to be using the Bible quite a bit today. So make sure you have your Bible out and open to Matthew chapter 1. Now if you're thinking, well, wait, I don't, I don't have a Bible. Or if you're thinking, dude, I'm driving right now and reading anything is pretty ill-advised. Uh, don't worry, I have got you covered. I'll be reading uh, each section from the English Standard Version of the Bible so you too can follow along. And if you're now thinking, but I don't have an English Standard Version of the Bible, that's okay too. Uh, just grab your favorite version and follow there, uh, all the references, and I think we'll all be okay. Alright, so uh, I also want to remind you, if you haven't picked up the accompanying study guide for this series, you can do so on our website, that's www.theboldspeak.com. Uh, the entire study guide covering 16 podcasts is only $10, and this will allow you to, to take notes and get some additional information that can be extremely helpful to, to support each of the lessons. So I'd encourage you to go pick that up as soon as you can. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into it with Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Question 1 asks, where does Matthew's genealogy begin, and why do you think it begins there? Notice how Matthew's genealogy begins with Jesus as being the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now you have to take note of the fact that within Judaism, these are two pretty heavy hitters, right? David, the, the king of the Jews, and Abraham, the father of the covenant. And then he further supports this by pointing in verse 2 to the fact that it's the Abraham who is of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fame. Right? So all of this is pointing to Jesus as the son of the covenant. Now also notice that we're getting our Matthew themes here introduced by the connection between Old and New Testament. Matthew wants to be very clear that Jesus is the one that's connected to all the prophecy that led to this point. And so referencing Abraham and the covenant is kind of bringing the entire narrative together. Also notice that Matthew's purpose here is to, to tie Jesus to the Old Testament, where other uh, writers did, did different things. Take a look, for instance, at Luke chapter 3. 
Luke 3's genealogy is traced back to Adam, and this is showing that Jesus is the son of God and the descendant of the Genesis 3 primary covenant in Genesis 3.15, where he promises to send one born of a woman to fix the sin problem we brought into the world. All right, so uh, Matthew's uh, kind of beginning with Abraham points to a lot of his themes and the things that Matthew wants to cover in his gospel, and that's why it's important to recognize right off the bat what Matthew's trying to show us. All right, let's move on to question two, and that starts with a reading of Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Question 2. What connection is Matthew making here with the Old Testament? Again, Matthew is drawing connections to Jesus and Israel, and this time he's emphasizing the theme of Israel reduced to one. See, just as Israel was in Egypt at the time that Israel was being persecuted, so too Jesus and his family are in Egypt during the time when children are being murdered in order to eliminate the perceived threat. And this uh, Matthew further connects to the Old Testament by referencing Hosea 11.1, 1, which says that the Son of God will come out of Egypt. Okay, so what Matthew's trying to do is, again, draw all the connections together between Israel and Jesus in showing that the narrative of Jesus and who he is is a continuation of the Old Testament. All the prophecy, all the direction toward the Messiah is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. All right, so again, this is a really important thing for Matthew and an important thing for us to recognize as we move forward in this gospel. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to question three, and we do that by starting with the reading of Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
All right, so there's a lot to cover here in regard to the identity of, of John the Baptist and, and kind of what he stands for and what this is all about. So we're going to kind of take this piece by piece here over the next three questions to really see uh, what John is talking about and how it is exactly that he's preparing the way of the Lord. So the first question we're going to address here is question three. How does John connect to the Old Testament? Now, there's, there's three particular portions of Scripture uh, that we're going to take a look at to, to show really who John is and, and what the purpose of his coming is. The first is from Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to take a look at verse 1 as well as verse 5 from chapter 4. All right, so this is Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Alright, so in these two verses, uh, what are we seeing here? Well, God prophesied in Malachi that he was going to send one, a messenger, that was going to preempt the coming of the Messiah. And this messenger, he says, is going to prepare the way. Now, Malachi also points to something incredibly important, that he says he's going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day uh, Lord comes. So what we're going to be seeing here is not only is, is, is John preparing the way for Jesus, but he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. So who is Elijah and what are the connections? The helpful thing here is, is 2 Kings 1.8 and Luke chapter 1 verses 16 to 17. They're going to tie these together. So let's start with 2 Kings 1.8. They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Now what we see of John is that as John comes in to, to do his message to prepare the way of the Lord, he's dressed and has a very similar look to Elijah. And that's no coincidence. If you recall, in the previous lesson, we talked about the Essenes, that the Essenes were a group that had separated from a lot of the cultural realities of Rome and Greece in order to focus on the covenant and who they are as a people. That means that uh, John was removed from culture, and so he lived out in the wilderness. As a result of him living in the wilderness, he had a very common look to Elijah, who also lived out in the wilderness. He wore a garment of hair with a, a belt around his waist, um, and then we read that he fed on locusts and wild honey. All right, so, so John is in a scene. He's, he's separated from culture and now re-entering into the cultural interface and interaction in order to call the people to repentance and prepare them for the reality of Jesus Christ. All right, so Matthew is trying to show you the strong connections between Elijah and John. And it's going to be further supported in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, that say this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, what Luke is referring to here is to John as he's kind of explaining the, the birth narrative of John. And specifically, he says that he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, right? thus preparing the people. So, so why Elijah? What's the connection here? 
If you'll recall, Elijah was the prophet of the Old Testament that came up against the rulers and principalities during a time when faith in the true God, faith in Yahweh, uh, was very slim. Uh, Elijah's the one that went up against what was called the most evil king that ever existed uh, in Israel, and that's Ahab and his wife Jezebel. So everything that Elijah represents to the people is one who is calling the people back from a place where they had strayed so far from God and who he is. And so the connection here that Matthew's making and the connection that the Bible itself makes is that John is fulfilling that same purpose and role. The, the people had wandered away from God. They didn't know what it meant to be a follower of God. And so here comes John to call them back, to turn their hearts uh, back to their father God and to give them the wisdom of understanding to realize what's really going on here, right? And this is how he's preparing the people. If he can get them to refocus on the true God and, and remember the covenant, remember how it works and remember what God promised, then it'll make a whole lot more sense to them when they see Jesus, right? And so this is the purpose. Just as Elijah was calling the people back to return to God, so too John is calling the people to return to God in preparation for Jesus. Okay, and so those are the connections that John has with the Old Testament. Now let's get into John's words specifically, and that gets us to question four. Question four asks this, how does John respond to the Pharisees? Why do you think he responds this way? You'll recall that in John's kind of response to the Pharisees, he's pretty harsh, right? And says some pretty harsh things. So we're going to go back and we're going to focus on just a couple of the things that he says in order to really get a grasp on, on why John is reacting the way he is to the Pharisees. The first thing you'll see in your study guide is we're focusing on his phrase, you brood of vipers, okay? Now, you have to understand that snakes very commonly are associated with the deception of the people of God, right? And specifically, we can see the connection here uh, between the, the snakes and the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Right? So you can see that this literally is John calling the Pharisees spawn of Satan, right? You brood of vipers, you children of the deceptive ones, and specifically Satan here. Now this is this is pretty harsh, uh, pretty harsh language toward the Pharisees. And what you can see here is there's clearly no love lost between John and the Pharisees because John has a recognition of what he believes the Pharisees to be doing. Okay, John apparently sees the Pharisees as being responsible for deceiving God's people, right? That somehow the Pharisees are leading the people of God astray. And this is important to recognize because this is going to be a major point in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, uh, you're going to see Jesus uh, speak to the Pharisees as those who are leading the people astray. Very specifically, Jesus is going to use the word hypocrites over and over and over again, toward the Pharisees. And we'll discuss more uh, about kind of what he means by that as we go along. All right, now notice what comes after this declaration of they're a brood of vipers. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, so, so what's John getting at here? Uh, in other words, John is, is questioning their reason for coming. In other words, what's the purpose for you uh, coming here uh, while I'm doing uh, these, these works of baptism for repentance for the people? Right? John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, that is, uh, calling the people to return to God in preparation for Jesus' coming. So the question he's kind of presenting to the Pharisees is, 
for what reason do the Pharisees believe they need to repent? And that's a, a fair question. If they're coming out for baptism, or to even see what John is doing in baptism, what is the purpose of their coming? What do they want to know? So this is John trying to get to uh, the underlying reasons for, for what the Pharisees are up to and why they've taken such a sudden interest in John and sort of what that means. Okay, so uh, let's move on here. Uh, so he, he kind of calls them to question as to what their purpose is there. And then he points to what he believes to be an assumed response from them. Okay, and this is in verse 9 when he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Now, what this is getting at is Abraham Abraham being the father of the Jews really counts for nothing without faith in God. Okay, in other words, claiming to be Jews as descended from Abraham is nothing if you don't carry the same faith as Abraham. And so John is showing a distinction between those who claim to be the people of God out of birth lineage and those who claim to be the people of God because they share the same faith in the God that Abraham believed in, all right? And this is when John kind of issues a very stern and pointed warning, right? Because in verse 10, he says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, all right? Specifically, what he's getting to here is he's saying the time uh, to, to be ready and the time to really have faith and understand who our God is is now because the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? The kingdom of God is here. And you remember, that is our third theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew wants to point to the fact that the time to, to, to really understand the nature of the covenant, the, the time to understand uh, what God has been doing throughout the Old Testament, is now. Right? The Jews are no longer in a season of waiting. They're not anticipating the coming of a Messiah. He's calling them to recognize God because the Messiah is here. Okay? It's, it's a live, real, actual event happening right now. And so this warning to the Pharisees is, you all better really take some moment for, for reflection because the time that, that you are supposed to be helping everyone get to, that's now. And you're not doing that job. I am. All right. So this is, a again, a very, very stern warning uh, toward the Pharisees to, to say that they better kind of get their act together. All right. Okay, so uh, now that we've kind of got that warning and, and John's frustration uh, toward the Pharisees, let's move on to the uh, next question here, question five, that says this. What does John mean by a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Now here to understand this, we have to remember that John's baptism has a very specific focus and purpose. All right, John's baptism was a means of repentance. That is to say, John's baptism was a, sort of a, a declaration of faith on the part of the believer to turn from sin and unbelief and once again enter into a trusting relationship with God. All right, so it, it's serving as more of an opportunity for people to, to recall their faith and return to a relationship. Now, the, the reality that is of critical importance here um, is that as the promised Savior is now born and on earth, uh, baptism and the relationship with God is going to be shifting and changing. And so this is why John points out that Jesus is going to do something pretty incredible with baptism. Specifically, he's going to baptize people in a different way than John is. That is to say that Jesus' baptism is different than John's. 
Jesus's baptism is going to come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. All right. Now, the, the Holy Spirit is pointing to the reality or a significant giving of the Holy Spirit in baptism. That is to say, God is entering into a very unique and special relationship with you in your baptism. And then the reference to fire is not a reference of judgment, but rather a, a reference of renewal, as fire cleanses and refines. And this is an Old Testament concept of fire that the Jews there, the audience there, would have recognized and understood. So specifically what John is saying is that Jesus is going to bring a baptism that will bring about faith and a special relationship with God and will cleanse the people from anything that needs to be cleansed. Now, specifically, we understand that to be sin. So what he's saying is that baptism in Jesus is going to actually be doing something, something significant. And this is an important point to make about baptism. So many times in many evangelical circles, baptism is seen as a dedication of the person to God. And it's not that baptism can't be understood that way. In fact, that's exactly what John's baptism was. The difference and the important thing that we need to recognize is that the baptism that we are called to do today as the Christian church is Jesus's baptism, not John's. In fact, John points out that his baptism and the ideas that he's promoting and the things that he's doing to prepare the people, those are going to pass away as Jesus is going to bring the fulfillment of the covenant. And so our baptism is the baptism of the covenant fulfilled, which means it's God's work toward us, not our dedication to God. And that's a significant switch when we think about baptism. And I think something that many times uh, people sort of get tripped up on. We think of baptism as a personal dedication, which it is in fact not in Jesus. In Jesus, it's God's gift of love, grace, and mercy. It's God's work of cleansing. And that's a pretty significant understanding to, to have as you enter into baptism or any discussions of baptism. All right, so uh, that's kind of where things are at now with John as he's preparing the people. And next uh, next lesson, what we're going to take a look at is a little bit more of how Matthew leads you into the Sermon on the Mount and talk a little bit more about Jesus and, and the kinds of things that he was doing, the things that he was saying uh, to get us to this pivotal moment in Matthew chapter 5. Okay? All right, so um, speaking now of uh, some of the incredible things being done, uh, the media actually has done something pretty incredible, but not in a good way. In fact, uh, it's incredible because I never thought I would see such a blatant series of actions to support an agenda in my lifetime. But here we are, and people all over the world must take notice. It all has to do with the release of the movie Unplanned, and it's a topic of conversation on this episode of The Wire. Wire. A lot of people struggle with conflict. The reason is because too many people spend too little time effectively engaging in it. Simply put, the less we engage with others, the less we know how to work with others. And eventually, things can get out of hand rather quickly. Children are a perfect example of this. Not having much experience with conflict, they tend to lash out or shut down, especially when faced with the truth they know deep down is wrong, but struggle desperately to defend. This week, many in popular media showed just how childish they still are. American audiences were faced with a hard truth this weekend, the film Unplanned. 
It's the true story of a woman who went from pro-choice to pro-life after witnessing the horrific events of an abortion over ultrasound. And while the pro-choice, pro-life debate has raged for years, nothing has quite caught the ire of the pro-choice side like this film. How do we know? Well, because popular media showed its teeth. Thus far, they have been able to hide behind scientific arguments and cleverly crafted platitudes about the subject of abortion. They have shook their heads in disappointment as headlines rolled, showing violent actions and bad decisions of the pro-life movement. But when this film emerged with a brutal and honest look at abortion from the first-hand account of a woman who was deeply steeped in the pro-choice movement, something changed. Something showed itself that the world wasn't expecting. And like a child, they threw a fit. If the movie was clearly inaccurate or absurd in its premise, you would think that logical people would recognize it and simply dismiss it without another thought. Instead, major television networks banned any promotion of the film. Record labels refused to allow their music to be included in the film or any advertisements associated with the film. Then, as if it wasn't a clear enough indication of their obvious bias, Twitter suspended the film's account on opening weekend. Not that it should surprise us coming from Twitter, uh, followers of the podcast know we already addressed the inherent problems on that social media outlet. And with all this backlash and anger from the film, I was reminded of my children and about the struggles associated with conflict resolution. Honestly, you don't have to have children to recognize this, although kids are a shining example of this fact, but the strength of emotions is many times tied directly to our thinking. If my kids know they did something wrong and I challenge them on it, they tend to lash out. That is to say, they push the hardest against the sins they know are true. And nearly 100% of the time, that is how I know what really happened when faced with two competing stories. Whoever is fighting the hardest is usually compensating. Well, when it comes to unplanned, it feels like someone is compensating. There is no battle to fight with this film. The woman who the film was based off of has verified the events as they are depicted. No one is standing up from the pro-choice movement and saying, well, that isn't what it looks like, or that's not how we do it. Because apparently, that is what it looks like, and that is how they do it. The film is simply showing a woman's journey through this difficult issue. So why then are some in the media fighting so hard against the film? Maybe because, like my children, they know they got caught. Abortion is one of those issues that is easy to fight when you don't have to face the reality of it. Much like war can be glorified in movies and video games, but is a different story when you're actually pinned behind a wall with bullets zipping past your head. The world knew it happened, but didn't want to see it. It was safer that way. Unplanned stripped the world of that safety. See, now we are faced with it forced to look at the actual events and decide whether we still think the way we used to. And it appears that that is exactly what the pro-choice movement is so afraid of. What will people think if they see it? What happens when it becomes less of an abstract political issue and more of a real-life humanity issue? And so they tried to keep you from that. They worked hard to stop people from staring into the screen and, like Abby Johnson, being forced to reconcile their political beliefs with the real events. But in a fascinating twist of life, it seems to have actually hurt the movement. 
Even those who are pro-choice are expressing their dissatisfaction with the popular media and how they handled it, and for some, causing them to question the validity of the movement altogether. So, uh, will this end the violence against the unborn, a violence that mysteriously earned the film an R rating? Not in the immediate future. But could it start a crucial line of questioning that could lead to a sobering realization that abortion is inhumane and a violation of basic human rights? I hope so. At the very least, I hope it makes people pause and consider the value of life, because there is a lot to value. In the meantime, we pray and discuss these truths with others, always leading with the grace and mercy that our Lord first shows us. Maybe, with the gospel as our guide and the truth now more accessible, we can make headway in protecting life at any stage. That's all for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, please make sure you stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Check out our website at www.theboldspeak.com. And make sure you subscribe to this channel on all our media outlets to get the latest news information and episodes as they are released. Until next time, everyone, I'm Anthony Creeden, and that is The Bold Speak. <laughs>